Welcome back to History Blurbs. I had planned for the first episode of, let's call it season two of this podcast, to be in another week or two. And then something horrible happened. The death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I always intended to do an episode on Ruth and very much did not want to do it under these circumstances. I read most of her dissents and generally a lot about her before I ever considered having a podcast. She gave us a lot, and I want to give her this. So this will pretty much definitely be longer than my usual episodes, especially if my notes are any indication, but it's hard to capture this five-foot-one giant in such a short span, so here we go. Joan Ruth Bader was born in Brooklyn, New York, on March 15, 1933. Her father was a Jewish immigrant, and her mother was born in New York to Jewish immigrant parents. Ruth's sister Marilyn died of meningitis at the age of six, when Ruth was 14 months old. She started going by Ruth when she started school because there were several other Jones in her class. Her family and friends called her Kiki, spelled K-I-K-I, a nickname Marilyn had given her because she was a Kiki baby. She would remain Kiki to those closest to her for the rest of her life. Her mother Celia died just days before Ruth graduated from high school, but up to that point had really pushed her education. She thought that education would enable her to be independent. Finding a man was great and all, but it wasn't everything. She cited her mother for her incredible ability to focus. When her mother was dying, she would sit in her bedroom to do her homework, completely concentrating on that work. Celia seems to have had the same focus. There's a story about her reading while walking down the street, falling, and breaking her nose. Ruth's former clerks tell a story about celebrating her birthday in chambers, and her looking up in surprise after 10 or 15 people had entered the room. She hadn't noticed anyone come in. Ruth attended Cornell University, where she met her husband, Marty. She graduated as the highest-ranking female student in her class with a Bachelor of Arts in Government. She married Marty a month after graduation, and they moved to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, where Marty was stationed in the Army Reserve. In Oklahoma, Ruth worked for the Social Security Administration Office, where she was demoted when she became pregnant. She gave birth to Jane Carroll Ginsburg in 1955. A year later, she enrolled at Harvard Law School. She was one of nine women in a class of 500 men. The dean of Harvard Law at that time invited the nine female students to a dinner at his home alongside male faculty members and asked each to answer in turn why they were at Harvard taking the place of a man. He later said he meant this in kind of a jokey way and thought it would be a good way for the women to kind of show off to faculty members who might doubt them, but that's not how it came across to any of them at the time. Ruth transferred to Columbia Law School for her final year when Marty, who was a year ahead in law school, got a job in New York. I'd like to mention that even though Marty was a year ahead in school, Ruth actually took the LSAT before he did. She graduated in 1959, tied for first in her class, and was the first woman to be on two major law reviews, having served on the law reviews at both Harvard and Columbia. Despite her impressive academic performance, Ruth was turned down for multiple jobs due to her gender. She even had potential employers tell her that they couldn't hire her because they were afraid how their wives would react to them working in such close proximity with a woman, even though they had female secretaries. Finally, after one of her Columbia professors threatened to never recommend another Columbia student to him, Ruth was granted a clerkship with Judge Edmund uh, Palmieri. I might have pronounced that wrong, sorry. 
She served two years in that role. After clerking, she was a research associate, then associate director of the Columbia Law School Project on International Procedure. She co-authored a book on civil procedure in Sweden, even going so far as to learn Swedish for the project. She spent time at Lund University in Sweden to conduct her research, and this time heavily influenced her views on gender equality. In Sweden, women comprised somewhere around 20-25% to of law students and one judge that Ruth included in her research was still working at eight months pregnant. In 1963, Ruth became a professor of law at Rutgers Law School, teaching civil procedure. She was paid less than her male colleagues because she had a well-paid husband, and was one of less than 20 female law professors in the U.S. She gave birth to her son James in 1965. In 1970, she co-founded the first law journal in the U.S. focused exclusively on women's rights, titled The Women's Rights Law Reporter. In 1971, Ruth volunteered to write the brief for Reed v. Reed, the case in which the protections of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment were extended to women. In 1972, she left Rutgers to teach at Columbia Law School, becoming the first tenured woman there, and co-authoring the first law school casebook on sex discrimination. This was also the year she argued Moritz versus Commissioner before the Tenth Circuit on behalf of a man who had been denied a caregiver deduction on his taxes because he was a man who had never been married. This was a case that was immortalized in the film On the Basis of Sex. As a side note, I actually watched the film for the first time last night and was not prepared to see the real RBG at the end. I think someone may have been cutting onions in my house around that time. The same year, she co-founded the Women's Rights Project at the ACLU and the next year she became the project's general counsel. By 1974, the project had participated in more than 300 gender discrimination cases. Ruth personally argued six gender discrimination cases before the Supreme Court between 1973 and 1976, winning five of them. Ruth chose her cases carefully, knowing that gender discrimination would have to be dismantled piecemeal, not all at once. She represented both male and female plaintiffs to show that gender discrimination was harmful to everyone. She specifically liked to target laws that appeared at first blush to be beneficial to women, but actually served to reinforce the idea that women should be dependent on men. Her strategy extended to word choice, often using gender instead of sex after her secretary suggested that the word sex would be distracting to judges. I'm not going through the rest of the Supreme Court cases one by one. You can look them up, and I highly recommend doing so. Her collective victories for gender equality discouraged legislatures from treating men and women differently under the law, and her friend and fellow justice Antonin Scalia later called her the Thurgood Marshall of women's rights. He was not the first to make the comparison. She continued to work on the ACLU's Women's Rights Project until 1980, when President Jimmy Carter nominated her to serve on the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. Ruth wanted to understand all aspects before coming to a conclusion, and often found consensus with her conservative colleagues, earning her a reputation as a moderate and a cautious jurist. She served in this role for 13 years, until President Bill Clinton nominated her to the Supreme Court on the recommendation of U.S. Attorney General Janet Reno, after a suggestion from Utah Senator Orrin Hatch. Ginsburg was still viewed as moderate at the time, and Clinton was reportedly looking to diversify the court, so he picked a Jewish woman. The first Jewish justice... I had a hard time saying that, since 1969, and only the second woman on the Supreme Court. If anyone is wondering, yes, Sandra Day O'Connor, the first female justice, is still alive, but is sadly suffering from dementia. 
Ruth Bader Ginsburg was confirmed by the Senate in a 96-3 vote on August 3, 1993. In 1997, she became the third woman to administer an inaugural oath of office when Vice President Al Gore requested she do so for his second term under President Bill Clinton. She's believed to be the first Supreme Court justice to officiate a same-sex wedding, which she did in 2013, after a summer in which the court had bolstered same-sex marriage rights in two different cases. She really seemed to find her voice and became a pop culture phenomenon after Sandra Day O'Connor's retirement in 2006 which left Ruth the only female justice until Sonia Sotomayor's appointment in 2009. Once again, I won't go through all her opinions or even her dissents on the Supreme Court, but you should absolutely read her dissents on your own because they're pretty epic. I do want to highlight one that Ruth herself was proud of, though. In 2007's Ledbetter v. Goodyear, Lily Ledbetter filed a lawsuit claiming pay discrimination based on gender. The court voted against her 5-4, to four, not actually disagreeing with the gender-based discrimination, but saying that the statute of limitations had run out. Ruth emphasized the secretive nature of pay disparity, saying, In our view, the court does not comprehend, or is indifferent to, the insidious way in which women can be victims of pay discrimination. In her dissent, she called on Congress to undo the court's decision. The Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act was passed in 2009, with Ruth credited for helping to inspire it. It was the first law signed by President Barack Obama. She hung a framed copy on the wall in her chambers. These dissents caught the attention of many, including a student at the NYU School of Law after a particularly contentious Supreme Court case. She followed Celia Bader's advice to use her anger productively, and posted Ruth's dissent to Tumblr. This became the notorious RBG a moniker that had to be explained to Ruth, who was delighted by the connection to the rapper The Notorious B.I.G. Ruth liked to say it made perfect sense because they had something very important in common. They were both from Brooklyn, New York. She also said, I think Notorious R.B.G. took off because young people were yearning for something hopeful, something positive. In my long life, I've seen many changes, changes for the better. The most important is that we are now using the talent of all people, not just half of them. She was asked by Orthodox Jews to oppose the way the Supreme Court bar inscribed its certificates in the year of our Lord. She did, and the Supreme Court bar members have since been given choices of how to inscribe the year on certificates. She was a huge fan of opera, and often said that if she'd had the singing talent, she would have been a great diva. She attended operas and festivals with friends and family, including fellow Justice Antonin Scalia. Ruth and Scalia were famously great friends. And my favorite thing he said about her was, she loves opera, she's a great person. What's not to like about her? Except, of course, her views on the law. She got to appear in several non-speaking roles in various operas, and in 2016 got to speak lines she had written in The Daughter of the Regiment. Ruth and Marty were married for 56 years, until his death in 2010. She regularly cited advice given to her by her mother-in-law on their wedding day. She said the secret of a happy marriage was that it helps sometimes to be a little deaf. Ruth said she followed that advice assiduously in every workplace, including the Supreme Court. She said, if an unkind word is said, I just tune it out. Though she went through multiple rounds of cancer and other health issues, she didn't miss a day on the bench until 2019. Her response to being physically weakened from treatment was to start working with a personal trainer twice a week, and before her 80th birthday, could complete a session of 20 push-ups. 
She was often asked in recent years if she was considering retirement. The answer was always an emphatic no. When specifically asked if her age had required any adjustments, she said, I don't water ski anymore. I haven't gone horseback riding in four years. I haven't ruled that out entirely, but water skiing, those days are over. Ruth's final battle with cancer began in February 2020, though that was not announced to the public for a few more months. She said, again, that she would remain a member of the court as long as she could do the job full steam. She said she aimed to emulate Justice John Paul Stevens, who retired from the court at age 90 after 35 years. She made it 27 years before her death on September 18th at the age of 87. Ruth died on the eve of Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. It's said that very righteous people die at the end of the year because they were needed until the end. There's a lot I haven't even touched on about her life, like her famous collection of jabots, the collars she wore with her robes. This is an intentional omission. They're part of another project I'm working on for this podcast. I've also yet to mention her terrible cooking or the pocket constitution she carried in her handbag. I love these humanizing elements, especially with the turmoil many of us feel politically in the wake of her passing, but there's just so much to say about her. In an interview, Ruth was asked about the extraordinary empathy she seemed to possess for so many people, family, friends, plaintiffs. She said, It may have begun when I appreciated how much my parents were affected by the death of my sister, so I knew what it was like to grieve. If I had to point to any one thing, I'd say it was growing up with an understanding of what it means to have a devastating loss in one's life. If I can do something to make someone feel a little better, of course I should do it. Or at least, to feel like they're not alone, that other people have encountered the same terribly trying situation and have made it through. If you're feeling deeply affected by the loss of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I hope you know you're not alone. She told us to fight for the things we care about in a way that will lead others to join. And she told us to keep going. May her memory be a blessing. Thanks for listening.